Hello and welcome to another episode of 28 Tech, the show that looks at how technology and digital innovation are changing various aspects of our lives. I'm Angelina Draper and today we look at education, more specifically how we are learning and how we are teaching. Later on in the show, I'm joined by Andrew Pickup from Microsoft Asia. We've had examples, um, you can go to YouTube and look for them, um, of uh, you know, schools in America learning from schools in Africa about, about growing crops, as an example, or about their life, as an example, and they're doing that through, through Skype, and that's happening a lot. And later on, I chat with author and strategist Parag Khanna. One of the key shifts in, in thinking about how children use technology is letting them take the lead. It's letting them actually just tinker and play and deconstruct uh, technologies and objects and then figure out what they want to do with it. There's a lot happening this week, so let's get started immediately with the Tech News Roundup. It seems that not a week goes by without mobile payments dominating tech news, and it's not always great news. Last week, some of Bank of America customers who used newly launched Apple Pay found themselves double-charged, a technical glitch which the bank says was promptly resolved. This week, one of Apple's competitors, Currency, which is being tested by Walmart, sent out an email informing its pilot users that its security was compromised. An unauthorized third party is said to have obtained some of Currency's customer email addresses. Speaking on Bloomberg Television, Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan, however, remains confident mobile payments are the future. Taking what you carry around in your wallet that's too thick to sit on and drives you crazy, you're taking those things and putting them someplace that the convenience now becomes more secure and tap and pay. What better for a customer? A report released on Wednesday by the International Data Corporation, or the IDC, put Chinese technology company Xiaomi in third place for global smartphone sales. 327 million units were shipped in the third quarter of this year, marking a 25% increase from a year ago. Samsung dominated with 23.8% market share, followed by Apple with 12%. This is the first time Xiaomi made it into the top five list and is said to have beaten Lenovo and LG for third place thanks to its China-focused strategy. On Thursday, just a day after the report came out, Lenovo announced it completed its purchase of U.S. phone company Motorola Mobility from Google. Had the merger happened earlier, it would have guaranteed Lenovo third place and a reported market share of 8%. Google's YouTube network is said to be considering a subscription model that would do away with ads altogether. Speaking at the Code Mobile conference this week, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki recognized there were cases in which people simply did not want to see any ads. She drew a parallel with mobile apps where customers often upgrade from a freemium model to a premium model just to cut out ads altogether. Last year, YouTube gave the individual channel owners the possibility to charge for some content, but the project has remained widely unknown. Wojcicki said YouTube was currently exploring various options that would satisfy both content creators and vendors. It was also revealed this week that more than half of all YouTube views now come from mobile devices. Google released a bookmarking service this week called Bookmark Manager. It's a revamped version of what was previously called Google Stars and replaces the previous bookmark interface, adding a visual layer to the traditional look. Users' bookmarks now appear in colorful tiles, but this, of course, being Google, means it's not just about the visual appearance. As usual, there are a lot of algorithms at work, and the new bookmark manager will also attempt to categorize your bookmarks. 
For now, the tool is available as a Google Chrome extension. And finally, ever wonder what rocket scientists do all day? Well, two graduate students at Princeton's Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department are developing an electronic deodorant stick applicator. Called Click Start, the reusable deodorant applicator is being touted as eco-friendly, with developers saying it saves between 30 and 90% of plastic waste. It dispenses exactly the same amount of deodorant each time and is even animated with customized LED lighting. And as no product would be complete today without a mobile app, one has been developed to work with each applicator. It suggests just the right amount of deodorant the user should be applying and allows customers to order refills. So far, developers have received over 500 pledges through their Kickstarter campaign and just over the $55,000 goal they're aiming for. Back in 2001, the American writer and education speaker Mark Prensky published an article called Digital Natives, Digital Immigrants. In it, he describes digital natives as people born after the introduction of digital technologies. They're comfortable using various degrees of technology for almost all aspects of their lives and think nothing of trying new devices, new gadgets or applications each and every time they're released. He defines those of us born before the digital age as digital immigrants who have had to learn to adapt to new technologies and even a new language. Although both groups now have access to the same technologies, the way we think, communicate and experience them is often fundamentally different. As Prensky points out, digital immigrants, like many immigrants, learn their new language with an accent and often keep one foot in the past. He uses the example of the did you get my email phone call, which a digital native would never think of making. These differences can be seen in many places, such as the workplace, in politics, and even in media. But it is in the education field and in our schools that the divide is most acute. Students are digital natives, and most teachers are digital immigrants. My first guest today is Andrew Pickup, Microsoft's Director of Communication for the Asia region. Along with wealthy private donors, large corporations, and especially tech companies today, are both giving and investing millions of dollars into education. Speaking to me at the Social Matters event in Hong Kong, he tells me how he thinks technology is changing the way students are being taught today and how teachers and students are learning new ways of communicating. Well, I certainly think that um, teaching has changed since, since I was uh, a child or a student. Um, certainly the predominant aspect of teaching uh, during my generation was, uh, was memory and was pure knowledge, uh, the ability to regurgitate, the ability to repeat. And um, I think there's a theory called um, Bloom's Hierarchy of Learning, which takes knowledge and then says, do you actually understand it? Can you apply it? Can you add value? Can you create new knowledge uh, from it? And I think that um, that's you know, predominant in education today. That's moving education along. And I think that technology... Uh, collaborative technologies, devices, the way in which teachers are, are teaching students today is definitely at the heart of that and a great enabler. And companies like Intel, Google and Microsoft that you work for, are we know you're all investing a lot of money in education. Give me some examples of how this money is being spent to help this, to enable this, um, the teachers to communicate better with the students. Sure. So we have a program, it's a long-standing program now, it's been going for over a decade, and it's called Partners in Learning. 
and it exists in every geography or every country that Microsoft operates in, so it definitely exists here uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, Partners in Learning is a, uh, a grant or a series of programs uh, that help teachers through granting software, services, and support to help enable them uh, for how they can be better teachers and uh, produce better students uh, using technology in the classroom. Over the last decade, we've um, granted over half a billion dollars across the world uh, to over 10 million, 10 million teachers to help them become better teachers through the use of technology. Can you provide me with some examples of some creative and out-of-the-box solutions that Microsoft Education has been part of? I'll give you a couple of examples. One one's actually quite prevalent now, and the other one is a glimpse of the future, which I think is very exciting. Um, one of the products that Microsoft uh, has is called Skype. Skype, you probably know as a consumer, is um, you know a, a piece of software that connects people for, regardless of their geography from around the world. If you think about that, you think about where does knowledge exist, where does learning exist, suddenly it's geo-agnostic. It doesn't matter where that is in the world, you can get to the best expert in the world. So we've had examples, um, you can go to YouTube and look for them, um, of uh, you know, schools in America learning from schools in Africa about, about growing crops, as an example, or about their life, as an example, and they're doing that through, through Skype, and that's happening a lot. Uh, Skype is very, very popular. Um, in, in the classroom. The second example I would give, um, which is a sort of nascent technology, but we're moving to a beta stage right now, is something that is called Skype Translator, Skype Universal Translator. Amazingly, um, you know, one of the barriers for learning is, is language and whether you can communicate in another language. You might be the best expert in the world, but if you can't communicate with another person, you're not necessarily going to be able to transfer that language. So earlier this year, we demonstrated the first beta of uh, Skype Universal Translator. And amazingly, what that allows you to do is to speak in your language. And using speech software recognition technology and software translation technology, almost instantaneously, instantaneously will translate into the other person's language. Then they will speak, and it will almost instantaneously with a slight delay, but almost instantaneously translate. That opens up complete barriers, not just in education, but in society, in politics, in you know, tolerance of different races, different religions, etc., etc. And is, to me, is super exciting. That's actually really interesting because it's a tool we all use almost on a daily basis, especially for those of us expats living from the on the other side of the world, and as a way of communicating. But this is actually taking a communication tool and making it into a production tool, a productive tool, I should say. Yeah, completely. So that's very exciting. We hope to get that out to the marketplace by the end of this year. Okay. And Microsoft is, of course, a global brand. Where are you investing the most in education, and how do you choose what countries or what cities to invest in? Is there a, is there a scale? Is there a, a point system how you allocate the fund? Um, it varies by country. As I said, Partners in Learning is just one program that we do. We have a series of programs, the majority of them available in every country. Um, in terms of you know, where are we, where are we uh, focused, I would definitely say that we believe that both from a human, uh, human being perspective, we believe that everyone has the right to a decent education, and we think that we can make a contribution. You've named some other companies that are making those contributions as well. And then secondly, from an economic perspective, increasingly, you know, the jobs that people are going to graduate or leave school to go and fill will require technology at the heart of that. 
In fact, a recent report suggested that that's going to move from 50% of jobs will require over the next decade will require some kind of technical skill to 75% of jobs. So definitely both from an individual's perspective and from an economic perspective, we want to make a contribution. If you were to ask me, well, where are we focused? If you look at where the gap is in terms of where do people have a decent education and, and not, clearly emerging markets is an area that we would focus perhaps a little more on, especially here in Asia-Pacific, because uh, there is a gap there in terms of uh, the right of the child to have a decent education. The presence of gadgets and technology in a classroom, in some cases it's equally distributed amongst all students and everyone walking in, whether they're, say, for instance, in kindergarten class, everyone's had the same exposure to it. But this isn't always the case, especially in state-funded schools. Do you think that too much, there's, there's a point in which there's too much technology um, in a classroom which might even uh, create the haves and the have-nots, the ones that have access to tablets and, and gadgets at home and come in and pick up a lot quicker than those that don't? Well, that's a great question. I think that there's a potential for a digital divide in many aspects of society, not just in, in, a, in a classroom. Uh, from Microsoft's perspective, we do our level best in order to help bridge that guide. Um, we talked about Partners in Learning as one program that's not just for the teachers, that's also providing access to hardware, software and services for the students. I know Intel are doing something um, similar. We have another program called Shape the Future, and Shape the Future is about working with governments, uh, especially perhaps emerging market uh, governments, to try to bring volumes of, of devices uh, as well as software and services into, into the education system. So. That's basically how we're trying to address, but at the ultimate end, it's to do with uh, the local country and the local government in order to bridge that gap divide. There's been a lot of talk about children learning how to code. How important do you think this is as part of a child's education? I think it's increasingly important. Uh, there was a huge program coming out of America that we were part of last year called We Speak Code, and it positioned you know, uh, coding and information technology as increasingly important once a child graduates in terms of their capabilities and ability. Uh, I mentioned earlier a report that said that technical skills, or computer skills, will increase globally from 50% to 75% in terms of a prerequisite to getting a job. Uh, so I do think it's absolutely important, um, and we were you know, very, very well integrated into that campaign and ran it here in Asia-Pacific. That said, I'm hoping that, that there, you know, there will still be lots of room for other people. You know, we need artists, we need musicians, we need um, chefs and caterers, etc., etc. So um, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's certainly an, an area that we are definitely focusing in. Parag Khanna is an author and strategist who co-wrote the book Hybrid Reality with his wife and says what we need more of today is not IQ or EQ, but rather TQ or technology quotient. I caught up with him at Hong Kong's Social Matters Conference. In your book, you talk about nomophobia, um, the fear of being away from our mobile phones. Now, do you think that Generation Z, the, the toddlers of today, this is a problem that they're not going to face because they will have always had a mobile phone around them, pretty much the same way you and I don't have a fear of not being near a television set or a microwave. They'll always have communications technologies around them and ever more micro-size, even embedded in various ways. So, for example, they may take Google, Google Glass for granted in the way that we take mobile phones for granted. 
today. It's no surprise because of all the great technologies we've had over the last centuries, such as whether it's electricity or the telegraph or the steamship, the one that has spread the fastest around the world is the mobile phone. So from zero to 100% of humanity within a 40-year period, we're almost there. We're not totally there yet. So this generational Z is definitely going to have that connected mobile device either attached to their body or more or less attached to their hand. Um, and and it, it is very customary for them. I'll give you another example of something that hasn't quite reached there yet, and that's moving beyond the QWERTY keyboard. I think that Generation Z is going to have other means of articulating themselves in, in, in sort of a, a permanent form besides having to sit down at a QWERTY keyboard. And we can see that with the rise of voice recognition technologies. I think they will take voice recognition technology, um, you know, much more for granted than we can today because we're still tinkering with it. And what effect do you think this is going to have on the way that they learn, on the way they absorb information, store information, and then manage to feed it back? Um, many of us growing up were taught in a way where we had to memorize things and then just spew them back. And some might argue schools, especially in Asia, are still doing that. But let's assume that the Gen Z really is not faced with that and is using the technology that many schools are now starting to implement. How do you think that will change the way they, they're, they're learning? Well, it's not even a question of the future tense because already, in fact, a lot of research shows that Asian schools are, in fact, ahead of the average Western school in terms of their experimentation with technology. And this is obviously particularly in the private international schools in Asia that are investing a lot in technology in the curriculum. So it's the flipped classroom and it's collaborative telepresence research with other schools. It's problem-based learning. It's flipped classroom. It's, it's that kind of collection of activities, not just to what extent you use an iPad versus not using an iPad, but really about the mode of working with other people. So it's definitely way past just rote memorization and feedback. And I see this with my children in their school, and I think that's a set of practices that, again, is spreading very, very quickly around the world if you look at how school curricula are changing at the kindergarten level and all the way up. Interesting you talk about collaboration. One of the fears quite a lot of parents today have and people talk about is that teenagers today so obviously the, the digital natives don't know how to communicate. They only communicate through a screen. They only communicate through texting and through messaging. Are you saying that the Z generation, the toddlers of today, will have bypassed that and through technology have learned to communicate and interact? But will they be speaking to each other? I think they will speak to each other, and the reason that texting, you know, became so prominent for an interim generation, if we can call it that, is because of the lack of, you know, 4G and eventually 5G speeds and the ability to have that real-time video conferencing with multiple parties the way probably Generation Z is going to take for granted. So their ability to actually speak to each other in real-time without the delays and the drop calls and so forth will actually make it quite natural to have that kind of uh, passive yet constant communication because they'll just be uh, constantly connected uh, through these technologies. So again, these are things that we're just beginning to do today, but we don't have either you know, the bandwidth or other kinds of constraints right now, such as the cost of calling and video conferencing and so forth. All of that is obviously going to drop to near zero the way it is. And so I think they will be the beneficiaries of that. You talk about technologically assisted evolution. Is this limited to biology and science, or do you see it being applied in the field of education? 
Well, evolution more broadly should not be restricted as a term to only biological processes. It is a term that actually, you know, sort of predates Darwin, right? Uh, however, it's been, I don't want to say hijacked because it's incredibly important to think about biological evolution as perhaps the most important aspect of this phenomenon of evolution. But we obviously have evolution in our society and in our political systems and in our global consciousness. All of those things also evolve as well. But the biological dimension of it is extremely important. And, you know, uh, we cite uh, the great uh, Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Fogel from the University of Chicago, who said that just the medical advances of the Industrial Revolution alone, so 200 years ago already, the advancements that were achieved in life expectancy had created what he called techno-physio-evolution. So that's leaving aside the direct genetic interventions and manipulations that we're able to do today through genomics and gene therapy and new pharma pharmaceutical technology. So before those were even in place, we have so been able to um, manipulate the normal process of human evolution and life expectancy that, that, that uh, even before the technologies that are emerging right now, we really have had technology-assisted evolution. So that's just the biological dimension, and it's set to accelerate because of new research that's ongoing today. Beyond that, I really do believe that there are broader social evolutionary patterns that relate to the way in which uh, societies are able to relate to each other, or the ways in which you have uh, new kinds of communities that form through technology beyond national borders. And so we're undergoing what in political science we call systems change. The world of the future is not just instead of one great power, you have three great powers. So you have entirely different kinds of players in the system, such as uh, non-state groups and social networks and so on. In your book, you talk about a generational divide. Once upon a time, there were cultural divides. Now we're facing generational divides. How do parents, we're both parents, teachers, educators, how do we, what is the best way for us to talk to both the Generation Z and the digital natives of today, the teenagers of today, and all the way down? How do we, how do we keep this communication going when we're actually coming from very different worlds? Well, I don't think there's any lack of communication. I think there's probably a lack of perspective in terms of understanding each other's perspectives. Now, my wife, who, of course, co-authored this book, would say that it's not about how do we talk to them. It's actually focusing on how they talk to us. Because one of the key shifts in, in thinking about how children use technology is letting them take the lead. It's letting them actually just tinker and play and deconstruct uh, technologies and objects and then figure out what they want to do with it. And that's actually how they learn. So we need to give them a bit of space rather than simply instructing from, from the top. And that's also a lesson that isn't really new. That goes back to Seymour Papert at MIT, uh, who's my wife's hero. And, uh, and he's done the pioneering work on this. And his, his writing on this literally dates to the 1960s and 1970s. But it's now that we're starting to see the curricula really unfold that embrace this notion that, in fact, let the kids lead, let them learn, let them teach us. One of the examples we use in the book is uh, the Stanford Computer Science Program, where it used to be that the older graduate students were the masters of certain programming languages and would teach the incoming students. But now the number of new ways of coding and programming and, and working in that field have, uh, have proliferated so quickly that younger people are adopting and learning the newer coding patterns and techniques faster than the older ones. So older graduate students have said to us, well, the younger grad students know more about XYZ kind of new, new method than we do.
With me today to talk about apps in the last segment of the show is Jay Oatway. He's a digital marketing consultant based here in Hong Kong and works with parents and students to develop a positive online presence, also known as digital citizenship. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me, Angelina. What are some of the apps that you're using with your son and that you're finding interesting in the education sphere today? So uh, Code Academy, which is uh, has an online presence, uh, they also have created a an app called the Code Academy Hour of Code. This is a great introduction for parents who want to show their kids a few very simple tools that that walk them through building a piece of of, of code, a piece of software. Um, it starts very simple with them sort of creating one command line that produces an output, uh, what we call a, basically a hello world um, sort of thing. And it works its way up to having them exchange values on variables and all sorts of things. So is this something that the parents would do together with the children? Absolutely. This is, uh, if you are someone who knows about coding already, it'll be a great talking tool to sort of show them bits and pieces and stop and discuss it. If you yourself is completely new to coding, this will be a great hour of learning for you as well. Excellent. And it's a great way for children and parents to be able to bond over something that we all know we often hear as a buzzword, getting children to code. It's it's quite difficult to find a way to get them started. And some schools are offering the course, but sometimes parents just want to or need to take it on themselves and often don't know how to do it. Um, so the second one you talked about is Minecraft. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that and how it differentiates itself from just being another game? Sure. Minecraft Pocket Edition, which is available on your mobile devices, is a little bit different than the full version of Minecraft, which is a PC-based or, or Mac-based uh, tool that connects to the web. The version that you get on your device can be an excellent parenting tool. If you've got, like many parents, more than, than two tablets in the house, this is a great opportunity for you to roll up your sleeves and actually play a game with your kids. You can connect the devices together over Wi-Fi and find both yourself and your child in the same world together. You can then set about building things. For those out there, parents who haven't uh, really seen Minecraft or don't really understand what it is, Minecraft, you could imagine it like a, a bucket of uh, infinite Lego pieces pre-sorted for you already. And you emerge in a world that's got grass and hills and water, and you can decide how to, to, what you want to build. The next sort of level up to it is a survival mode, which you've got to get your own pieces together. And this is a great opportunity for parents to help teach their kids the importance of, of working together. And it also sounds like a great way for parents and children to communicate. One of the examples you gave me earlier on was about, for instance, um, parents giving their children a task to go and fetch some wood. Uh -huh. um, and it is a great conversation starter as to why we would need that, where they can go and get it, things that children would not be exposed to in today's world. Well, I think this is just it. I mean, if, as parents today, especially if you live in a city, there's not a lot of opportunities for you to send a younger child. And we can really, you can do this with, I've done this with my son when he was um, six. I think this is easy to do. You, you can go into the game and you can decide, okay, let's build a house together. And in order to get a house, right, we need, uh, we need wood. And in order to get wood, we need to get an axe. And as a parent, you can help break the tasks down into smaller pieces. And you can help sort of guide the child from one idea to another. And the fact that we have a bigger project that we're working on is something that an adult can hold in their head more easily than a child. And you can make the little pieces of it uh, much more doable and manageable. 
and you can sort of you can teach responsibility and discipline and sort of like hey didn't i like 15 minutes ago ask for a bunch yeah. of wood where where is it gone <laughs> yes and and they're Some like, logical oh, logical distracted. thinking process and so yeah so you can sort of talk through all sorts of things you can get them to help on design how big the house should be how many okay. floors it's going to be and the more complex it is obviously then the more tasks we have to go and do and work together on and finally, you mentioned YouTube. It's one of those websites that um, parents are actually quite often wary of because children can spend an infinite amount of time on watching music videos and just silly things. But it is also an educational tool. Sure. Uh, like all of our online things, there's this pros and cons to them. If we can help our ch children uh, make positive choices, it's a big part of digital citizenship. And one of the positive choices that we can all make with YouTube is to, is to use it as a teaching, as a learning tool. YouTube is the second most utilized search engine after Google itself. People go to YouTube to ask, how do I do things? And you can learn anything on there from how to do smoky eye makeup to, I kid you not, I've done this myself, how to open a hotel safe. I won't ask how and why, but let's um, leave that. You can learn, you can learn. And for, for kids, they can learn there as well how to code in Minecraft, how to take it to the next level and write codes and commands for their, their, their programs. It's a fantastic tool for learning. Well, that's all we have time for this week on 28 Tech. Remember, join us next week at the same time or listen to us via podcast. If you do, please remember to leave a review and if you'd like to get in touch, email 28tech at rthk.hk. 